We continue our study in 1 Peter today. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 to 19 is going to be our passage. And it's on page 1016 of your Pew Bible. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12 through 19 says this. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will and trust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Friends, the grass withers and the flower falls, but this, the word of our God, will stand forever. Let's pray and ask his help as we interpret it this morning. Gracious Lord, we come to you, and even as we hear the words suffering uh, in our passage today, our hearts are burdened and weighed down by a weariness that comes at that word. A weariness that comes from our own failure to hope, even in the midst of our suffering. Not because, Lord, our faith may be inadequate, but because the world's sufferings sometimes so overwhelm us that it seems as if we should ask the question of what's the point in hoping anymore? And so we ask, Father, that as we listen to Peter's gracious and powerful exhortation, that we would find ourselves like Isaiah prophesied your people would in the day of their exile, that we would find ourselves lifted up as if on the wings of eagles, Father, so that the responsibility of our obedience in the midst of trial is not an insufferable weight, but it's actually a glorifying and beautiful reality through which we contemplate your work in our lives. Please help us to see that this morning. Please help us by your Spirit's power to see your gentle, fatherly heart at play as we come to discuss this passage. And we ask that you would do this despite the inadequacies of our ears, also in spite the inadequacies of the speaker this morning. We ask that you would do it not for any of those things, but for the sake of your mercy and glory. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. 
on a clear night in April 1974. It stands in our memory as one of the greatest nights in baseball history. You baseball fans should probably know this because it actually was April 8th uh, and recently passed its almost 40th anniversary. It was the night that Hank Aaron broke the home run record that Babe Ruth bore for years in baseball. And it was the culmination of a three-year pursuit of the greatness that Hank Aaron was able to perform in baseball. He was a baseball legend for all of his offensive production and ability outside of what happened on that night. But on that night, it particularly shined through and it vindicated his greatness as one of the best of all time hit the home run that broke Babe Ruth's record. But what is often not told in the chasing of that story in Hank Aaron's life uh, is how much suffering went into that night for him. It's one of the most iconic moments in American baseball history. You've seen it play out a thousand times that these two white fans are, are trotting around the bases because they've left the wall and a black man, Hank Aaron, has just broken uh, the home run record that a white man, Babe Ruth, used to hold. It's a beautiful picture. But what's often not told is the hostility that lay behind that picture. The hostility that made his bodyguard, who was in the stands that night, grip his revolver and have to make a split-second decision as to whether these men were going to try to kill Hank Aaron or whether they were trying to celebrate with him. And that lesser-told story of the suffering that he endured was actually a powerful scar in the life of Hank Aaron by his own testimony. It was, it was a powerful uh, memory and legacy in his own life of one of the moments where he felt the greatest hostility of his life. For years throughout his career, especially as he, was disillu- as, as he tried to break Babe Ruth's record, he was disillusioned even after that point for years after in baseball. It almost ruined his relationship with the sport that he loved and had competed so well at. Because as Aaron would say, he said, it was supposed to be the moment of my greatest triumph of my life. But I was never allowed to enjoy it, and I actually couldn't wait for it to be over. In the months leading up to when he actually broke the record, he was sleepless because of the, the sheer volume of hate mail he got for simply being a black athlete who was trying to persevere and compete well with integrity in his day. He would later be praised for his quiet resolve and dignity in the face of his suffering, but again, it was a scar that he would carry around, and his legacy wasn't, I would say, truly vindicated unless, un, un, until later when his teammate Bud Seelig became commissioner of baseball, and that's when his relationship with the sport actually became, came to change. And you would think that at the height of his achievement, the world could have given him a pass as you have done well. And you have endured great trial to get here. And you are worthy of the glory that you deserve. But it was one of the most trying times in his life personally. He was scarred because of the sufferings that he had endured. 
And there's something similar in the way that Peter's actually calling us as Christians to endure this morning. Because what Peter's been trying to do is he's been trying to outline for these Christians who are suffering that there's a way that you can endure suffering that actually leaves you more scarred by the suffering you endure. There's a way that you can imbibe our world's view of suffering that will lead you to feel as if your greatest moment of suffering that you're about to face is your greatest failure. And Peter wants to tell us how to survive the suffering of a hostile world so that we won't be scarred by it, but we'll be prepared for it. And you might be weary from how Peter's actually continuing to talk about this idea of suffering. I mean, he's mentioned it four or five times. There are four or five passages where he's just like laying it down for us that you will suffer in this life as a Christian. And you are wondering as you come to this point in his letter, he literally has just told them, he says, because you're going to suffer, suffer for what's righteous. Arm yourselves with the same mentality of Jesus as he opens up this chapter in chapter 4. Because Peter is trying to help them understand if you don't think like Jesus about your suffering, you won't be able to endure in the hour of your greatest trial. And the big idea of what Peter wants us to actually shape our understanding of suffering with in this passage is he's going to tell them that the gospel has so reshaped our suffering to be an instrument of God's glory that Christians can joyfully endure while they soberly await the day of the end of all suffering. Peter's going to tell us that the gospel has so reshaped our suffering to be an instrument of God's glory so that Christians can joyfully endure their suffering as they soberly await the day of his coming. And we're going to see that through three ways in this passage today. We're going to see three points that Peter wants us to say. He's, he, he wants us to see how the gospel reverses the meaning of suffering. The gospel turns this on, it, on its head. He's going to see how the gospel reveals the types of suffering. And he's going to write how the gospel actually helps us to soberly endure suffering. He's going to say the gospel reverses suffering. The gospel reveals types of suffering. And the gospel rewires us to soberly endure our suffering. Peter has been talking so much about suffering in this epistle, it makes you begin to wonder as he comes into chapter 4 and his tone changes. There's something significant, a fiery ordeal that these folks are about to face. Uh, and it, as Peter's talked about suffering every time, it makes you sort of feel this tension in your own heart of how far does this actually go, Peter? I would scream too. I would scream at the thought of how far does this actually go? It makes us want to cry out. How deep does this actually go to saturate our lives? 
And we have to sort of draw back for a minute and think that Peter is just, he's not some sort of masochist. He's not someone who endures pain for the pleasure of it. He's someone who actually has faced situations where he could suffer for the name, and he was found wanting every single time. Think about Peter in, uh, as he forsook the Lord Jesus during Holy Week. Three times he was given opportunity to stand as a witness for Jesus, that he was associated with this, this teacher, this rabbi, Jesus. The last time came from a little girl. There was nothing to be afraid of. And yet Peter, he, he just like fell flat on his face. But it was probably a tension that he felt as he endured the rest of his life. Because think about uh, Derek Thomas in a, in a sermon on this passage. Think about Peter as the guy who, in, who's in uh, Galatia. Where Paul writes his letter and says, I had to openly oppose Peter to his face. That's a way of Paul saying, I kind of had to embarrass Peter in a loving way, y'all. Because his actions were really inconsistent. And what had happened was Peter had so bought into the praise and the, the affirmation that these false teachers, these Judaizers had given him for, for eating with them and avoiding certain types of food that when the Gentiles came to Galatia and when Paul came, like, uh, or he, he had so, let me, let me swap that up a little bit. Peter, Peter had basically been eating with the Gentiles, which was a Jewish no-no. But in order to get the affirmation from the Judaizers, what had happened was he like put away all the pork and bacon when they came and started to act as if he should still obey the same ceremonial rites that a Jew should have, all for the sake of not enduring the hostility of these men who were affirming of him, probably. And as Peter is contemplating his own response to suffering, this was something he had to drink deeply of in his own life so that he would learn not to fade in the face of suffering that feels like death. And as he talks about the fiery trial that's going to come, Peter's writing this epistle probably in the early 60s, and he can see the writing that's on the wall, because that was during the reign of Nero, who was a really bad dude. And during the height of Nero's persecution, it's said that he would actually crucify Christians in his garden at night. That's how he lit his garden up. And so Peter sees all the social ostracizing that's going on on the scene before th things get that bad. And he sees it's hard for these Christians to be employed. It's hard for them to endure the difficulty of standing for Jesus amidst their relationships. And he says, be prepared because it's going to go deeper. There's going to be a fiery ordeal that comes. And he calls it a test and it wouldn't have been uncommon for Peter, who came from a Jewish background, to think that God was testing his people and refining them in the furnace of suffering. That's why he uses that language. But the language of fiery ordeal is that it's a, it's a painful, painful trial. It feels as if you're being set fire. D.A. Carson tells us that Peter has had in mind, what he means by this is the abuse and opposition of a world that detests Christ and his followers. And I'm not sure that you and I will have to face this in our lifetime, this kind of fiery ordeal. 
But there are a thousand degrees that we must actually have to endure as Christians in a secular society like ours that will require that we prepare with a similar mindset to what Peter is saying. And so Peter's trying to give them strength in the face of what looks like their actual death. And he rewrites in this first four verses of this uh, passage, he gives three ways that the gospel changes our suffering. He says the gospel reverses suffering to be an opportunity for rejoicing instead of surprise. That doesn't feel very kind, does it? Like when you experience rebuke for the name of Jesus that you represent, that you should actually feel joy? Is Peter calling them to some sort of stiff upper lip Christianity that's stoic in the face of insult and rejection? No, he's saying... It's an, the gospel has actually shifted the way that we respond in suffering. The word for surprise here was the same word that he used for the surprise that their, their pagan friends and neighbors would have looked on them for not simply engaging in the social appetites of the day. In verse, I think, 4 of chapter uh, 4. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you for simply trying to be holy. What Peter is saying here, that same word for surprise, is the same word he tells these Christians not to be surprised with. He intends a contrast between those pagans who are surprised that Christians are living differently in light of Jesus' coming. And so he's saying, you should also be surprised that the world's not going to treat you as if you belong in light of Jesus' coming. Because how did it treat Jesus? This is not foreign to your Lord. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trial. But what does it say? It says, take heart, he says to Christians, to Peter in the upper room. For I have overcome the world. And Peter is knowing the tendency in our hearts to forget our status as outsiders in a world where we're constantly trying to clamor along as insiders who actually belong. He knows how prone we are to forget our status, how we'll seek to accommodate ourselves to the world's standards of conduct for the sake of not having to endure the, supro- the reproach, surprise, and shame of being associated with Jesus. He knows we don't want to stick out. That's what you and I feel every time there's a chance that we can bear witness to the fact that we're a Christian. This is something I felt for the first 10 years of my life on staff with a missionary organization. When people asked me what I did, I hated to tell them, I'm kind of a missionary. Because people treat you different. Oh, you're a Christian? Oh, you like, you're one of those like radicals. You believe that some guy rose from the dead 2,000 years ago. And then he actually sits at the right hand of a, of a heavenly deity and he intercedes for you and he's given you that deity. Uh, he, he's given you his presence by his spirit with you, even now. It seems absurd in the face of a world that so denies Jesus. But Peter tells them they can take joy Because when they suffer for the name, they suffer for Jesus. 
They share in Christ's sufferings. That's such a powerful idea. That when you literally are maligned for the simple faithfulness of standing for the name of Jesus, you participate in his sufferings. And Peter is using that phrase. He's not saying we add to some atoning work of Jesus. But he's saying we share a fellowship with the Lord Jesus. He says that in your suffering, when you endure shame and reproach, you actually, if you do it for the name of Jesus, do it in a way that makes him near to you, that, that brings him close, that guarantees intimacy with him. And Peter knows that what they face is attention for how our world views honor and blessing and worthiness. He knows that we live in a world that relegates honor and blessing and rejoicing to those who are powerful and successful. And maybe these Christians had thought that suffering like that, suffering that would refuse them that honor, was something to be avoided at all costs. And friends, Peter is telling them in the very moment where you would feel like an outsider in this world, you're actually an insider in the fellowship of heaven. And that deeply challenges us in our contemporary Christian society. Because as Americans who live in the deep south, where it's actually beneficial in some ways to be a Christian, we are prone to buy the lie that our lives are only an upward trajectory of success. Because we're doing all the right things. We're Christian people. But Peter says, no, this identity, this, this name that you have been marked with and impressed upon you, it means you're going to suffer. But the moment that you suffer is the moment you walk in fellowship with your Savior. He's saying the more you suffer for the sake of your faith in Christ, even though the trial is fiery, the more you identify and are proving that you belong to Jesus. And this is the problem with all of our worldly versions of success that avoid suffering. They avoid suffering at all costs because it feels like you're an outsider or a loser. And Jesus says it's most when you feel mocked and ashamed. Peter says, Jesus says through Peter, that you can guarantee that you're an insider with the blessing of God himself. But Peter's not only saying that. He's not, he's not just saying the gospel changes the opportunity of suffering for rejoicing instead of surprising. He's saying that suffering is shifted by the gospel for how it becomes an opportunity for blessing and glory instead of insult. Peter says, the moment that you feel insulted for the name, the moment that you bear the reproach of Jesus is the moment that you actually bear out the pattern of our Lord. So that even as you experience curses from this world, he says this in verse 14, when you are insulted, 
you can be at rest because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. It's the idea that God himself comes to his people in their suffering. And the riches behind what Peter is saying are the idea that when you suffer well in the face of opposition, God makes his home with you. You know this in some ways as you watch people bear up under trial, that that it seems as if their entire countenance is transformed to be one of peaceful endurance. And Peter's saying that that, that, that is the mark of the spirit of the God of peace dwelling with you. That he rests on you, even in a world that rejects you because of how deeply he loves you. And he's referencing Jesus' own beatitudes, is he not? The, The beatitudes that say, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Matthew 5.10 says, For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when you are actually hostily treated because you simply want to represent the blessing of the name of the Messiah to a world that rejects him. But that's not the only way that the gospel shifts our suffering. It doesn't just change it for an opportunity of surprise to rejoicing. It doesn't just change it for blessing and glory instead of insult. He says that the gospel shifts suffering to an opportunity for honor instead of shame. I think this is so deeply comforting to God's people, friends. Because what he's saying in the first century where nothing would have more been associated, been more associated with shame than chains and death and all of the suffering and ostracizing that these Christians endured. People didn't want to be associated with someone who had endured so much. And so they were isolated. Sometimes it was the willful isolation of it's difficult to find a job because of your integrity in a world that's full of jobs that are the jobs that uh, are driven a lot by pagan idolatry. Sometimes it's, it's difficult to, to endure a spouse who doesn't believe. In a society where a lots of new Christians would have come to faith and maybe not their spouses would have. And the reproach and the shame that what they would have simply endured for identifying with Jesus in a culture that was so opposed to him. Peter tells them, you're going to think and people are going to treat you as if you've done something that you should regret and that you should be ashamed of because everyone knows it and you're an object of scorn. But Peter's actually telling them that the shame that they experience is a source of honor because of the name that that shame is heaped upon them in. Shame is a a word with a lot of nuance in our contemporary vocabulary. Ed Welch is a counselor who I love. He works for CCEF. He gives three sort of pictures of what shame is like. Shame is the idea that you've done something wrong and everyone knows it and you should be ashamed for it. It's that sense of embarrassment that you feel. 
But there's two other versions of shame that happen when people are victimized uh, in counseling settings where they're the victims of hostile aggression. One is the shame that comes from being uh, someone who's had something done to them and everyone knows it. A victim of abuse who's been made a pariah because of the abuse that they endured. That's a version of shame. Or there's a version of shame that says, uh, you're associated with something and everyone knows it. Friends, I can't think of a word that matches better than some of what our church has endured in the last few months. And that all of us sort of feel a difficult tension that's associated with simply being a member here at First Press. But I want to be really clear that what Peter says to you is that when you suffer for the name, your accusers, they might actually try to use shame to isolate and ostracize you. But in the voice and in the view of heaven, you are worthy of honor and glory and dignity because you bear the pattern of your Savior. I cannot speak to how every single one of us have endured some aspect of shame these last few months. And it will be really easy as people hear me say this to, to think, oh, he's, he's addressing one particular group of people or another, but that's not the motivation behind this. I can think as the collective circumstances have been endured, I can see it on our brows that every single one of us feels a sense that we're associated with something and that's not good. But friends, the Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus says that when you suffer well and you bear reproach for the name, that you actually are honored in the sight of God. This is such a difficult passage. Because Peter is also going to go from here and he's going to point out the types of suffering that the gospel reveals. And I think that's going to speak to us a little bit more. And he's going to say that the types of suffering that the gospel reveals, there's two types. There's the suffering that is driven because you have actually chosen to take a stand on the wrong place. The suffering that's driven by your own tendency to self-protect in the face of retaliation. That's why he says in verse 15, and it feels so unfair. Let none of you suffer as a murderer or an evildoer or as a thief or a meddler. He says there's a type of suffering that you can endure that is actually not the result of a gospel witness. And he's encouraging them, he's pleading with them, he's saying, friends, please, please don't endure the wrong kind of suffering here. On one level, this looks like the overzealous Christian who harshly states God's case to a non-believer and then finds that all of his friends think he's a jerk. Maybe there was a means that you could have actually said it a little bit more kindly. But sometimes our tendency in the face of that kind of suffering is to say, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm suffering for the Lord. But I think in the context of what Peter is saying, 
when you see the, the, the levers of power so forced against you, he knows the tendency of our hearts because it was a tendency that he used in the garden himself. He took a sword and chopped off the servant of the high priest's ear, Malchus. The tendency to hit back and to justify it behind a lens of self-protection in the face of how your oppressor might persecute you. And friends, Peter is saying, don't, don't suffer in a way that actually brings more shame on the name. Don't suffer in a way and respond like you're supposed to, like you're not supposed to because you respond the way the world expects you to. Don't try to isolate and meddle. Don't try to endure in the channels of power so that you can meddle in a situation for your benefit. Because he knows the tendency of every single one of us that will want to hit back when we're hit at. And he's exhorting us not to have the wrong kind of suffering. And it makes us wonder, friends, It doesn't seem fair that Peter does this. But Peter is clearly saying, as you suffer, you can't experience the suffering that you're not supposed to. It points out how we're so anxious and prone to try to protect ourselves from being a victim in the face of opposition. This can infiltrate our minds so much that you kind of look for suffering on the horizon as a Christian waiting for it to come like a shoe that's about to drop. And you're always viewing the world through that lens of cynical hostility of how are you going to hurt me? But what Jesus is actually saying and what Peter is saying through Christ is that even in your zealous love for self-protection, it's not appropriate that you sneak in the world's way of dealing with suffering. It's the way that says, I win the argument, I don't lose, and I will refuse to lose. But what Christ has been saying is that Jesus says you win by losing. You win by being willing to endure the reproach that comes from suffering for the name with the integrity of God's people. Like the Savior who would not strike out at his enemies, but as he hung, crucified on the cross, said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do because he could recognize the ways in our society and in this age that his struggle was actually against the powers of this age and not against the flesh and blood victims who had had their minds washed by those powers. Friends, we need to call ourselves to remember our status as foreigners because foreigners often could not actually exercise their rights in any way. And this kind of unhelpful suffering for self-protection is the kind of play, it's the kind of unhelpful suffering that can make the church a place where far too often we see this similar kinds of retaliation. And we must, in the face of wanting to hit out, hit our face and go down. And deny ourselves in a world 
that chooses hostile aggression as a self-defense technique? Are you the kind of person who plays some of the same games that the world would to try and establish dominance over those who might hurt you? Peter says, don't be meddlesome. Are you a meddlesome person who tries to work within the channels of power available to you to write your situation for your benefit? Peter's not saying that it's wrong to call people to account and to act rightly. But Peter's saying that there's a way that you and I can do this that actually compromises our integrity. And we cannot, we cannot, under any circumstance, buy that lie, friends. Peter's not telling them to live for self-protection and be vigilant in the face of oncoming suffering. But he's encouraging them to expect it and even to lean into it. Because the moment that you lean into it is the moment that you actually take the cruciform life onto yourself. John Calvin had this way of saying it, that the, the, the Christian's chief consolation in our suffering is this, that in the dying of Christ in our flesh, We have his life manifested in us. Peter is not just telling them how suffering has been reshaped by the gospel, though, or how the gospel points to different kinds of suffering that are helpful or not. Peter's pointing them to how the gospel rewires them to soberly endure and to await the day of Christ's coming. In the last two verses of this chapter, verses 17 through 19, Peter says, Oh, it's almost like he switched gears. He says, it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And you're like, Peter, why, why are you actually talking about judgment in the midst of difficult suffering? And it's because Peter has already started to talk about the end of all things is near. And Peter recognizes just like these Christians that they're going to feel as if The promises of the gospel are not true. And as they face down death, that it's not going to be a fair or steady hope for them. But he reminds them and he says, your suffering actually points to the fact that the end has come. That it's coming. And nothing can stop it. And he references this prophecy in Malachi. Because... Uh, it's, it's also in the other prophets. What, what, what would happen is as the, as the prophets pronounced judgment on God's people, they said that the place where God would start as he judged the world would actually be among God's people. And Malachi tells us that God's coming will burn as a furnace against the wicked. Edmund Clowney is a commentator who said that when, when, he, uh, when Peter is talking about God's appearing will bring a refining process to purify his people and make their offerings acceptable to him. He's pointing them to the hope that even as they endure what feels like judgment on them as they face death, that they can actually be utterly confident. It's actually the source of their vindication. And the confirmation that God's promises are still true. He contrasts the fire that purifies the house of God with the simple fact that that same fire that comes at the start of judgment will be the fire that consumes the wicked. And he's not just saying, take heart because there's wicked people in the world and you can point to them and say, oh, those are the wicked people. What he's actually saying is, friends, if anything 
your suffering should tell you is that there's a judgment coming. There's a judgment coming that if you are God's child and he is using it to purify you, to to sanctify you, to make you more like your son, the Lord Jesus, how much worse will it be for those who don't know him or love the day of his appearing? They won't be able to escape it. What stands behind this passage is a deep awareness from Peter that we all must pass through judgment. And he's wanting to pass on the sober comfort to these people that even if they too must suffer as part of God's judgment on this world, their lives match the pattern of Jesus. Because what was the cross? It was the ultimate judgment of God on the sins of God's people. That he might show them mercy. And the pattern of suffering that he went to leads to the glory with which he'll be vindicated. And the more that that pattern is manifest in your life, friends, Peter's telling you the more sober confidence you can take that the end is truly near. And it's not going to be as the fiery trial dictates your fear to respond, that you should respond in fear, but that you can actually respond in hope because not even death is something that can take your hope away. And Peter says this confidently. He's so confident in the reversal of the gospel for suffering because behind this passage stands the resurrection of the risen Lord Jesus, friends. But in this this passionate plea to suffer well in the face of coming judgment, he's also giving us the key to compassionate care in a world that hates you for the name of Christ. He says, if it's this difficult for the righteous to be saved, how much worse will it be so that you can actually look on your aggressors with compassion and choose to extend forgiveness to them like Jesus has done for you. Because the risen Lord has come. His suffering, all the judgment that he endured has been vindicated in the consolation of all the promises that he represents through his risen life. And he sits in glory at the right hand of the Father and from there he will come to judge again. But when he comes, we won't face judgment because he has taken it for us. So you can endure confidently and soberly until the day of his coming. This is what we sang about in that last, or first hymn. The last verse of thine be the glory. No more we doubt thee, glorious prince of life. Life is nothing without thee. Aid us in our strife. Make us more than conquerors. Through thy deathless love, bring us safe through Jordan to thy home above. Friends, no shadow of any fiery ordeal of death can keep you from the confident hope that comes because of our risen Savior's grasp on you 
And when we realize that, it changes the way that we endure our suffering so that we're not walking through the world scarred by it, but we're actually walking through the world secure in the love of a father who vindicates us in it. Let us pray and ask his help to be these kind of people. Gracious Lord, we come and we are helpless in the flood of a current in this world where it feels like so much suffering comes, so much shame abounds, that we would need your help to be able to withstand the day in which we find ourselves. Only through Jesus is our hope. So strengthen us in the hope of his risen life abounding over even what can rob us of our life because nothing can keep us from inheriting what he has secured for us, Lord. Help us awake confidently the day that you are coming, even if it means we must endure in a world where we suffer for your name. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.